0: Then was brought unto him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb. And he healed him, insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. And all the people were amazed, and said, Is not this the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. And Jesus knew their thoughts, and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. Or else, how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house? He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come.
1: So, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, after Jesus exercises a demon which had made his victim both blind and dumb, the people start asking if he might not be the Messiah. Now, the reference they're using, son of David, the man who was predicted to come and restore the kingdom of Israel, the people are starting to say, hey, this this guy might be the Messiah. The Pharisees argue from their position of authority, no, he casts out demons using the power of Beelzebub. Jesus understands both what they're saying and the motives behind it. Now, Beelzebub, the Lord of the Flies, was the title... Of a Philistine deity of Ekron, remember back in the Old Testament, there are three big city-states, Ekron, Gaza, and I'm not going to be able to remember the third. Can you help me out, brother? Gaza and, uh, Escalon. Escalon. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. <laughs> I, it's like, oh, can't remember. Um, and these city-states... Were, were allied together. They formed the power of the Philistines and each had their own individual gods, idols. And this idol, this uh, Philistine deity, identified by the Pharisees as the prince of hell. Now, we would just say Satan, uh, as did Christ when he refuted the Pharisees. And one theory behind all these... Um, idolatrous cults that would pop up, particularly in the Middle East, but throughout the world, is that behind each of these minor local deities might have been a demon that had some ability to violate natural law and demonstrate some degree of godliness to the ignorance of these people. Um, And it could be that behind Beelzebub was some demon who had some power over flies or you know, some ability to, to, to move flies around, and people would go, ooh, that's godly. Not a patch on God, but, but anyway, the Pharisees accused Christ of casting out demons through the power of Satan, who should have power over his own demons. And Christ responds that a house divided against itself cannot stand. If Satan granted his demonic agents the ability to cast each other out, it would be chaos and would undermine Satan's plans. And why would Satan grant any power to one who claimed to be from God? That would be crazy. And if he, Christ, is casting out demons with the power of Satan, what do they think was any other prophet's power source? In short, he reveals their argument as... Well, illogical at best. But if Jesus did cast out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom of God had truly come. And he gives the analogy that you cannot plunder the house of a strong man unless you deal with him first. You can't just walk into Arnold Schwarzenegger's house back in the 80s and proceed to steal his stuff because thump. It'd be a real short encounter. You have to deal with that strong man first. In the same way, Christ has the authority to bind the ultimate strong man, Satan, to defeat Satan and cast out his demonic agents. And Jesus divides the world into two camps. Those who gather along with him and those who scatter, opposing his work. There are those who accept Christ and those who reject him. And these camps remain unto this day. He, there's, there's no middle ground when you're dealing with Jesus. People love him or they hate him. They accept him or they reject him. You don't have a lot of conversations that involve Jesus. Meh. Firm opinions. Firm opinions either way. And Jesus warns the Pharisees that they can, they can cast doubt upon him. But casting doubt on the work of the Holy Ghost is a serious problem. Now, this is a big doctrinal point, okay? And there have been a lot of very serious works published on this over the years. You have heard of perhaps the the unforgivable sin? And there's a lot of words that have been published. There's a lot of arguments that have been made. And they really boil down to three ideas. One, don't mess with the work of the Spirit while he was writing the Bible. I think it's a reasonable approach. While God is writing the Bible, His ultimate authority, His Word that is going to exist for the next 2,000 plus years, interfering with that big work of God... That sounds like a really bad idea. But has God finished his Bible? This is the part where you all bounce your heads up and down. This is an exercise. We do this periodically. Yeah, God's finished his Bible. So if that's the concern, I can't run afoul of that particular one. Okay, Then another approach says, well, the unforgivable sin is rejecting the Holy Spirit during this life, and you will pay for eternity. I have no problem with that interpretation. That's entirely consistent with God's entire message. Reject Christ, reject the work of the Spirit, and you're going to spend eternity in hell, and you're not going to enjoy it very much. Then there's this third interpretation that knowingly discounting God's work, if you speak out about against someone who is, you know, working through the power of God, and you essentially do what the Pharisees did, ah, that's just Satan's work, and that's somehow unforgivable, I got trouble with this one. I don't think it's a very supportable position. I'm pretty sure this church doesn't think a whole lot of that position. Um, that's the dangerous one, um, I think God has made it very clear throughout his word that there is today a unforgivable sin and that is rejecting Christ. And I think it's just beautiful we see in this little piece little little piece part of this passage the humility of Christ. God himself is on earth and says you know guys if you want to badmouth me that's fine I'm a big guy, I can take it, but don't mess with God's work. And it just, it's its a beautiful illustration of Christ's humility. Let's move on to that next passage, continuing the story.
0: Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by his fruit. O oh, generation of vipers! How can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you, that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned.
1: Jesus now resorts to his frequently used analogy of a fruiting tree. (laughs) And at that time and at that place, it's a particularly apt analogy because everybody works around fruit trees all the time. What was the cornerstone of the economy? What was the one thing you could not do without? You used it for cooking, you used it for medicine. You used it as an illumination. What was the one thing no one could do without? Olive oil. olive oil. Olive oil comes from olives, which come from an olive tree. And there is such a thing as an olive tree that makes terrible olives. That they're, they're there. They exist. People would know of them. But then there were the, those trees that gave good fruit. Now, there were other trees producing fruit. There were fig trees. Um, There was a type of palm. But that olive tree, that was really central to their lives. And it made a great analogy. Everybody knew from personal experience, that's a good tree. That's not a good tree. And Christ says you can judge a tree by its fruit. And everyone goes, yeah, yeah, I like that. That's an analogy. That makes sense. I can understand that. But he starts this section of the passage off going to the the Pharisees. Be a little consistent, will you please? Because they just accused him of casting out by the power of Satan. And he's saying, yeah, let's be a little consistent. We know good trees, good fruit, evil trees, evil fruit. And have I been producing evil fruit? No, he had not. So don't accuse him of having a corrupt source. He's been producing good fruit. By the analogy, he must be a good tree. He must be bringing forth what he's bringing forth from a good source. Make up your minds. Be consistent in your statements. Demons don't produce good works like casting out demons or healing. He's just pointing out the fallacy of their arguments. I mean, that's the kind of statement you make in the middle of an argument where you just realize you've stuck your foot in it. You just said something really dumb and you've handed the other person, here, please beat me to death with my own arguments. That's what the Pharisees did. Jesus calls the Pharisees a generation of vipers. Now, vipers are particularly vicious snakes. Uh, if we want to use a North American uh, counterpart, consider rattlesnakes and water moccasins. Rattlesnakes, if you get close to them, they will warn you. You're bothering me. I suggest you go somewhere else. Water moccasins apparently will go out of their way to bite you. If they're in the water and you're in a boat, they will climb into the boat to bite you because they're just mean. Vipers, similarly, are mean snakes. They don't warn. They just kind of sneak up and get you. And so appropriately, Jesus calls the Pharisees the generations of vipers and evil. They're mean just because they want it. It's just their nature to be mean. They considered themselves to be righteous. That's the... The foundational truth. They know that they are right. Ever had had to deal with someone who just knows they're right? It doesn't matter what you do. Doesn't matter what you say. Doesn't matter what you show them. It doesn't matter. Nothing matters because they know they're right. They were born right, Pharisees. And he warns them that their words will be used as the basis of judging them. Their words reflected their hearts just as a, a, the fruit reflects a tree. And we will all be justified or condemned by our words. That warning is not just to the Pharisees only. And the thing is, the Pharisees knew their scriptural history. They were the experts. They knew the prophecies. They knew what God had promised. They knew the basics of the law. They just took what they knew, took their own interpretation, and they went this way. They should have been the first in line to recognize Christ for who he was and lead the people to him. That was their job. They were the leaders of Israel. But they were too convinced of their own righteousness And they were convinced that if a true prophet came from God, he would support them. And it didn't matter what this prophet from God had to say. It didn't matter how many miracles he could perform because they knew they were right. And that's an easy mistake to make today too. There are people in this world who follow God their own way, and they know they're right. And this story should be a warning to us to make sure we're not standing next to the Pharisees telling people what we believe and ignoring what God has to say. Jesus knows their arguments are illogical and baseless, and he calls them evil. He argues against them from his position of authority, something they don't seem to have expected, and he speaks before the crowds with the authority they claim to have well they they can't let him have the last word on this as we continue the story. they're going to make another try that last argument didn't go so well ah we we we'll, we' we'll'll we'll, we'll we'll try again. Let's see what they have to say next, brother
0: then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered saying. Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they Repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. The queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with this generation, and shall condemn it. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, a greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places, seeking rest, and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out. And when he is come... He findeth it empty, swept, and garnished. Then goeth he, and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be also unto this wicked generation.
1: So the Pharisees, having attempted to shoot Jesus down with false accusations and (laughs) just have it pointed out how illogical their argument is, they fall back on their standard approach. We'd like a sign. You know, if if you're really from God, you should give us a sign. How about a stop sign? Cut it out. A sign. We want a sign. A sign. They've just seen dozens of signs. Jesus just exercised a demon. They don't want a sign. They want a justification. They want Jesus to somehow prove himself to them because they are the ultimate authority. Can we we see how this is a little bit messed up here? Christ refuses their demand. He knows there's no sign he can give them that they would accept. The only way they will accept him is if he agrees with them. But they're wrong. Christ has been sent to earth in part to turn Israel around and get them moving in the right path. This is what every prophet since the beginning has done. God set out a path for Israel. Path for Israel. God set Israel down the path. Didn't take long for them to start doing this. And God sent a prophet. Said, Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, right. Sends another prophet. Still over there. Oh, okay. Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, right, right. Got it, got it, got it. Wait. Another prophet. Still over there. Every prophet's doing the same thing. You're supposed to be going that way. It's been 400 years. God sends another prophet. This prophet happens to be named Jesus Christ. This wasn't his only job, but one of the things he was here on earth was to point Israel in the right direction. Now, they chose to ignore that last set of direction and kill him instead. Now, this was part of God's plan. But Israel could have chosen to take the direction. Jesus knows there's no sign he would give the Pharisees that they would accept. They would just find another reason to object to whatever sign he gave them. He could have raised someone from the dead. He could have fed 5,000 people. And he did those things, and it didn't matter. The Pharisees still weren't interested. An evil and adulterous generation, he calls them. They're rejecting God, and they're worshiping around. You guys have heard the term, sleeping around. Well, that's what they were doing. They were worshiping around. They were worshiping everything except for the God they were wed to. When God chose Israel as his chosen people... He married them to worship of God. And every time they worshipped some other God, in the case of the Pharisees, you know what God they were worshipping? Who do you think the Pharisees were worshipping? Yeah, themselves. They set themselves up as the standard of righteousness. So who are they worshipping? Very modern idea, really. It's what mankind does today. We worship ourselves. Rejecting God... And worshipping anything but the God they were wed to. The the calling them out as an adulterous generation, very appropriate. So Christ, (laughs) Christ will give them a sign. Just not the sign they want, or the sign they expect. And they're not getting it right now, it's going to come later. He's going to give them the sign of Jonas. Now, don't get confused Jonas is the Greek version of Jonah, the Hebrew. We know names change when you go from language to language because certain languages, uh, they don't like the arrangement of the consonants or the arrangements of the vowels, so they make it personal. They they, they fit it in with their language. So Jesus becomes Jesus when you move into Spanish. And, you know, the, the weird thing is everybody seems to think that's no problem, But you hit Jonah and Jonas and everyone goes, ah, it's not the same. It's just another language. Don't get bent out of shape. Every time you see Jonas, just read Jonah if it makes you happy. It's the same guy. Jonah spent three days and nights in the belly of a fish. So would Christ spend three days and nights in the grave. Yellow title, uh, red title bar, always a warning. Don't let them confuse you. Christ spent three days and nights in the tomb, from Friday afternoon to Sunday morning. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. How many hours was that? Here we get into the, the big argument. See, because modern Western, Western counting would note that Friday afternoon to Sunday morning is, is a whole lot less than 72 hours. We're we're, we're concerned with hours, seconds, milliseconds. Friday, 1600 to Sunday, 800 is, is like 40 hours. That's a long way from 72 hours. Clearly, the Bible is wrong. You will be told. And the people who tell you this are very honest from their perspective, standing very comfortably, in 21st century Western thought. Was the Bible written in 21st century Western thought? Was the Bible given to the Jews in the 21st century in North America? No. It was given to the Jews in the 1st century, in the Middle East. Where they didn't hardly care what an hour was. Couldn't measure it with any accuracy. It was just part of a day. And to them, if you were in the ground for any part of the day, you were in the ground for that day. And if you were in the ground for any part of the night, you were in the ground for that night. So Jesus, hung on the cross, was buried before the Sabbath started. So he was in the ground Friday. And then he was in the ground all of the Sabbath night and day. And then Sunday night, remember, in the Hebrew accounting, night comes first and then day. Because, because. Why do we put day first than night? Because. There's no reason, it's just because. Well, they have a different because than we do. Does that make us better than them? I should hope not. Friday day, Saturday night and day, Sunday night and day, Christ arises from the dead shortly after day on Sunday, and he's in the earth for three days. Who cares if it was 72 or 40 hours? The Bible doesn't say God Christ was in the earth for 72 hours. No, it says three days and nights. And in the Hebrew accounting, he was there for three days and nights. So please don't try to move the crucifixion to Thursday to make it make sense. You won't. Because that wasn't the basis, okay? Everyone, everyone should do their neck exercises, nod their head, because someone will come up with this, come up to you with this eventually if they haven't yet. The great was their unbelief. Christ told the Pharisees that the Ninevites would rise in condemnation of them, because they, the Ninevites, repent. Revented, yeah, uh, repented at the preaching of Jonah, and what what, sign, what signs and wonders did Jonah give the city of Nineveh? He smelled of fish, and he may have been rather bleachy in skin tone. That's it on signs and wonders. Kind of a fishy smell, <laughs> and maybe a little bleached from the uh, we, we don't know. the Bible doesn't tell us, but there were no miracles he performed. He came before Nineveh and said, God is tired of you. Straighten up or bad things are going to happen. There may have also been some astronomical events that happened at that period of time. Bible does not say. And the Ninevites went, okay, we'll straighten up our... Thank you. Please hold off on the kaboom. We'll straighten up our act. Now, one greater than Jonah... Offering far more signs and wonders was before them. And the Pharisees go, it's okay, we're right. We don't want whatever it is you're selling. Go back. Go back to Nazareth. And and Jesus tells them the Queen of Sheba, who came to listen to the wisdom of Solomon, came from the greatest distance that could be perceived by the Jewish mind in that day. Okay, literally the ends of the earth as far as they were concerned, because the Queen of Sheba was as far out as Solomon's trading empire went. The very edge. In a a day and age without radio, without newspaper, certainly without internet, legendary, it's so far off. She came from that legendary distance because she'd heard of Solomon and came to hear of his wisdom and left Very impressed. Jesus says, she will rise up in condemnation of you, because one wiser than Solomon is here, and yet you're still right. Now, it should be no surprise to us that in relating this story to the Pharisees, Jesus accepted the Old Testament as a historical record. Uh, yet there are those who want to cast doubt on the Old Testament today. Even then, one of the big religious groups against Jesus, the Bible picks on the Pharisees a lot, but there was another group. You guys remember the Sadducees? Okay, if you remember the Sadducees, raise your hand. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. What distinguished the Sadducees from the Pharisees? Everything. The Sadducees were, the, religion, were the, uh, the, the high priests. The Pharisees were, were more middle class. The Sadducees were Hellenizers. They wanted to move Israel, 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 Israel? They wanted to move Jewish thought closer and closer to Greek modes and Greek ideals and away from all this superstitious claptrap They would have considered Jonah a myth because people aren't actually swallowed by fish. It's a well known scientific fact. Fish don't swallow people, people swallow fish. And certainly, if a fish swallows a person, they're not going to be in there for three days and then come back out. That's just not, that doesn't make scientific sense. The Sadducees were all about acting like Greeks rejecting the supernatural. So any Sadducee in the audience who heard the story of Jonah would go, yeah, this guy, Jesus, obviously he buys it. He's, He's not as hip. He's not as smart as the rest of us who understand that's all myth. No, no, Jesus did not take this easy way out of rejecting the Old Testament. Well, first of all, he's God. He knows the Old Testament's true. He wrote it. Throughout his ministry, Christ repeatedly credited the Old Testament events as written. No question. That's just an aside. That's not the main point of this story. So then the analogy of the demon. Jesus gave the Pharisees an analogy of a demon-cursed man. That's a really appropriate analogy when you consider where this story started. The exercising of a man possessed with a demon. Now, the story's gotten a long way away from there and somehow the the focus of the story completely missed the fact that a miraculous healing was done and this guy who for I don't know how many years has been blind and dumb courtesy of a demonic spirit is now healed. Nope, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is the Pharisees will not accept Christ. So Jesus gives them the analogy analogy of a demon-cursed man. He says if the demon is cast out, Yet the man is not then inhabited by another spirit, the spirit of God, perhaps. Then he's cleaned up his life, but he's made no real qualitative change, making it easy for the demon to return. And in a similar way, moral change and outward change is not enough. Who is he picking on, do you suppose, right now? The Pharisees, whose standard is all about Looking good, doing good, and we're good with God. Nope. Jesus says moral change and outward change is not enough, not against demons, and not against eternity. So, I finished a little early today. That means you guys get to participate more. How would you respond to someone who claimed the account of Jonah or other Old Testament accounts didn't really happen? That it's just myth made up by the Jews to support their specialness.